Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third interview as part of our podiatry systems and cause health uh, collaboration. What we're here to talk about today is a topic called philosophical bias and really why it's the one bias science can't avoid. And I think it's an incredibly important topic to cover because I think in previous uh, videos I've advertised this, this um, interview or this part of the course as being more about how we have better discussions because the way that we approach the world, our philosophy is, is a, is a bias and it can affect how we have discussions. But in reading a lot of the work um, by cause health, by um, Rani and by Eleanor about research and how it affects research, it also has, has occurred to me and or has, I've seen how it can affect how we do research, how we understand research, how we look at results, and ultimately then in how we apply those results to our patients and specifically our, our patients as, as unique individuals, not as uh, treating them like just the, the generic sort of a pop, uh, on a population basis, which is really what we've been talking about for the last, uh, the last two interviews. So before we jump straight straight in, I'd uh, like to, to welcome the, the two guests that we have uh, along today, which is uh, Dr. Rani Lalanyam and uh, Dr. Eleanor Rocker. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Rani. Perfect. So uh, before we get started, um, Eleanor, are you able to introduce yourself um, and um, who you are and, and uh, what your background is? Yes. Thank you, Alex. I am uh, a researcher at the Center for Applied Philosophy of Science, uh, together with Rani. Uh, and Rani and I have been working at the COSED project together. I have a background, uh, a broad background from the health sciences. So I am a pharmacist uh, by master education, and then I have a PhD in uh, molecular medicine. And I specialize on uh, uh, studying uh, a risk of exposures to environmental stressors, especially to uh, medicines, drugs, but not only. Uh, and I do it, I started doing it more from a technical point of view, so the toxicology really. But then after I met Rani and I went into the COSED project, I do it from a conceptual point of view. So not, not much what uh, what does this uh, chemical cause, but how can we know that a certain chemical, a certain drug can cause a certain risk? Yeah, so a lot more of a, um, you've got a broad background in both um, the conceptual side of things and the, the actual practice as well. Yes, we can say that. Yeah. <laughs> so like I said in the introduction, we're going to talk about um, philosophical bias, but I thought what would be a good place to start was if we broke down those those two concepts. And I think a good place to start um, is if we talk about what what a bias is. Um, what are we talking about when we say a bias? Um, do you want to start with us, Eleanor? Yes, I can do that. So in science, when we talk about the bias, we're talking about a systematic error. So something that we, an error that we make and that we carry on with in our experimentation, when we plan the experiment, when we carry it on, and when we uh, interpret the results of the experiment. And since this is a systematic error, we don't recognize it. It is there in the background and it kind of skews the results of our experiment. Um, an example could be the se a selection bias. So we, when we look at our data set, we make a mistake because we only select some type of data, a certain uh, uh, part of the population, for instance, but we don't realize it. It's inbuilt in our, in our method, methodology. Uh, another could be recollection bias in these experimental designs where, um, where patients and need to remember, for example, the medicines they got, what they were exposed to. So there is a recollection bias. So they only remember uh, the chemical that we are studying, for instance. They remember they've been exposed to a certain drug because this is the topic of the study, but they do not recollect other, other drugs. So this is another bias. And these, uh, of course, these systematic errors are not welcome into the scientific methodology. And a big uh, aim of science has been to try to remove them as much as possible. So of course, 
no one thinks you can be bias-free, but everyone thinks you, have, you can have some methods that are more free from bias than others, so more free from these systematic errors. And the thought would be that the more bias-free you are, the, more, the, the closer you are to this um, ideal of the objectivity, objective science. So this is what we talk when we talk about what we talk about when we talk about bias in general, scientific bias. Yeah, so what we're sort of identifying is it's something in the in the methods. So when we, we when, you know we're always taught at research papers, you know the the first thing you want to do is you want to read the methods, the how they went about the study, because what we're trying to identify is is exactly that in the study, what they've actually done and what that actually means for us. Because like you said, we can't always be bias free. And I guess, you know, when we go back to the previous two discussions, we've really actually kind of gone through the process of when we try and remove too many biases, we also create an artificial um, world or an artificial sort of uh, sample of what's actually happening in the world. But also what I'm, what I'm understanding is, is you're saying it's about understanding uh, what that there's biases and that there's um, things that can skew the results and identifying them uh, and acknowledging that they're there is actually a, a big part of, of, of it. So you can interpret those results with that in mind. Was that sort of, is that a good understanding? Yes. So there is a, a difference though between uh, the bias uh which is uh, this systematic error that i'm talking about which you are um, most of the times not aware of that's where it's a problem that's why it's a problem and uh, this other process we are talking about of causal for instance isolation when you are in the in the lab where you want to uh, remove interferers but this you do willingly so this of removing interferes is not a bias, it's, it's a methodology and it's part of your methodology. So a bias is uh, an error you, you make without uh, realizing, for instance, something that no one would like to have, even but no one would ever choose to have. An example would be a bias by indication. For instance, I'm looking at whether paracetamol causes asthma, Okay, and I might find the paracetamol is uh, correlated with asthma. And I might think that there is a, co a causal connection there because they're correlated. But I don't think that people who get paracetamol, they get it because they have, uh, for instance, um, infections of the airways, and this can bring to asthma. So there's not cause causation there. It's an indication. It's, so this is called a bias by indication. So it's a mistake you make in your... Uh, um, in your experimental design, which you don't wish to make, because it it brings you to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, so there's a, there's I guess when I go from from my background of what I was sort of talking about evidence based medicine, we we don't make that distinguishing between what's a bias and what's an interference. We'd kind of look at uh, we would sort of count them all as bad that where something's interfering. But I like that sort of that uh, differentiation because it's sort of saying, well, bias is something something in the system and our methodology and the way that we've gone about um, that process, uh, as whereas an interferer is kind of, when we focus on potentially removing too many interferers, we're potentially also removing reality, removing real life and we're removing what um, actually happens out in the real world when we treat our real patients. So I guess that's, um, that's a really useful uh, way to look at look at bias because definitely I think there's a there's a, a focus on just creating such an artificial environment that you only focus on the two things that you're studying we've removed every other thing and it's just like how can I apply this to my patient there's there's this nothing you know these aren't my patients that I see yeah so the kind of um the kind of philosophical areas that we have focused on uh, in CoSelf project is uh, uh, what we call ontology, which is the broadest possible theory about what there could be in the world. So maybe you have heard of the first philosopher, uh, Thales, or the first Greek philosopher that we know who said everything is water. So <laughs> it's like everything <laughs> boils down to water, and that's an ontological claim. 
um, later uh, Heraclit, he said that everything is change. So the only constant thing in the world is change. So that's also like a deep ontological philosophical claim about the reality. Um, then today, maybe we have more <laughs> different types of philosophies, but, but one is, for instance, reductionism, that we think that if something is real, it must be physical. And if something is physical, uh, we might, for instance, think that then it should, in principle, be observable. And then we are over into a, uh, an epistemological claim. So how can we get knowledge about the world? So you can see that those two are related. If you think, for instance, that in addition to something physical, there's also something mental. So uh, humans bring in an extra realm of reality uh, because we have minds. Then you would have to say, okay, how do we get knowledge about the mind? If you're a physicalist or a reductionist, you would say, well, you don't need the mind if you have the brain. So you just look at the brain and then you will find out everything you need to know about the mental activity, but, um, or at least in principle. So um, in epistemology, we, we, we ask, how can we know that what we think we know is true, true knowledge? Because there's a lot of things that we think we know and people have had knowledge for thousands of years. I mean, for as long as there have been people, but we have been wrong a lot. So how, how can we know that it's true knowledge? So one, uh, one claim in philosophy is that uh, the best type of knowledge is uh, abstract, universal, general, the underlying principles of things that you cannot observe directly. And that would be a rationalist. Uh, perspective because you have to use your rational capacity, your thinking capacity to get knowledge. And then the other extreme would say that, no, no, your thinking is uh, going to be in your way. So what you can trust is your observations. So your senses, and that is the empiricist uh, approach. So that's like the, the broadest possible ideas. So, so yeah, what I think from an understanding, when we take, when we look at what we're talking about with philosophy is we're looking at those two concepts, ontology and ep epistemology. And it's really about what do we think is happening in the, in the world and, and how do we know that it's happening? Um, so we're thinking about, you know, if we go to that example of, you know, the reductionist, you know, thinking about things are just physical. I'm guessing when we look at concepts like I'm thinking love uh, concepts like community, these aren't, physical concepts so if you're taking a purely uh your ontological view or how you think the world works is that everything that exists has to be physical then community the sense of community the love emotions all these things can't exist and i guess that runs into the issue of what can we observe um, what can we identify as physical for understanding the brain and so we're, if we're looking at philosophy then if we're taking that that sort of stance that will impact how we you know go about doing things or how we understand something is, is that is that sort of along the right lines yeah because if you if you think that uh society <laughs> uh is too broad uh, a concept uh well instead of saying that we cannot really have knowledge about the society, you can just define a society as a collection of people and people are physical. So that's just a sum of all the people who live there. Uh, so uh, in this kind of reductionist way of thinking, we say uh, typically that it's a, a nothing but <laughs> type of ideology. So um, if you say, okay, so what is the mind? Well, the mind is nothing but the brain. What is love? Love is nothing but a combination of uh, chemical reactions in the brain. So there's a lot of science on, on, on love and what gives the feeling of love. And uh, if you're a fiscalist, you would say yeah, it's, it's, it's chemistry. Hmm. So I'm thinking sort of examples um, that we can give that are more, more clinical. And I guess I'm thinking that if we look at what we've talked about previously, which is the Humean approach, that is um, that is a philosophy. 
that's looking at the world that anything is real, we have to be able to study it repetitively. So you are taking a, uh, an approach of how we know the world works, which is if you do an experiment and you do it multiple uh, over and over and over and over again, repeat it and you get consistent results, you can say, well, that's, you know, that's reliable and therefore that's knowledge. And I guess we're taking that and we're saying, well, if that's then, you know, reliable, then that must be how the world works, that if something's there. And I think we've talked about previously that if you've got something like the big bang, you know, that's only ever happened once. Um, so using that approach, all of a sudden the world's not not real. When we think about the cause health sort of approach, this dispositionalism, that's also another sort of, um, there's another philosophy because it's looking at um, that things can't just add up together or things aren't always repeatable. There's so many factors that, that cause uh, things to emerge and that could be an injury. It could be pain. It could be the result of a, of a therapy. So there's so many things to take into account. And when we want to say something's caused something else, it's, uh, it's not as clear cut. So I guess that's, that's why sort of philosophy is important, you know, because I'm under, if I'm understanding correctly, that we've got these two very different views of the world, which will fundamentally change what our decisions, how we interpret things, how we go about, for example, designing an experiment. So one thing that we're, we're saying in, in the course help is that there's a philosophical bias in your choice of scientific methodology. And those biases are linked to the concept of uh, what is a cause and the uh, probability and uh, complexity. And if we have a human bias, and then we have to think about uh, causation as something that requires uh, re repeated observations and that theoretical speculations <laughs> about why something happens is not really part of the scientific realm. Um, and then we say that, for instance, uh, uh, your study design is going to have these implicit assumptions, but it's not something we usually uh, talk about because what we usually talk about is like, okay, this is the best method and everyone accepts it. And on Twitter lately, there has been uh, shared um, uh, an example of a journal that says the only kind of causal uh, results that it will publish uh, are the ones from uh, randomized control trials. So that's uh, then we have argued in the in cause health that they are revealing that they have a very strong philosophical bias about the nature of causation. Yeah. So so that sort of moves us really quite nicely into you know talking about philosophy into talking about philosophy as as, as a bias. Um, because that's exactly it with sort of um, assumptions about, because that's what it is. We have to assume how the world works or how we know about it. And those uh, assumptions essentially impact how we make sy systematic decisions about how we study things. So yeah, this, this, the way that the choice um, of our philosophy or whether, you know, I'm guessing people don't know whether if they have this, if they're not thinking about it, they might not even know that they're making these decisions, their, their view of the world um, impacts their decisions. So yeah, that, that's, I think that's incredibly important. I guess what would be some good examples of um, we're seeing that philosophical bias in practice? Uh, Eleanor, do you have, do you have anything for us? Yes. Well, before going to the example of what uh, what we think a philosophical bias is, I'd like to, uh, if you, if I may, uh, clarify what I think it is not. <laughs> so we're not saying that uh, um, scientists don't know that they make assumptions. So we know, so scientists make assumptions all the time, uh, and they do it a lot of times in order to get to a certain result. For example, scientists make models and they know that these models are not uh, um, precisely um, mirroring reality, but they do it on purpose because it's a help to understand something about reality. Um, 
Uh, for instance, someone who studies the population growth might, might make uh, an assumptions of, of determinism. So they say, okay, we, we start from a certain number of uh, bacteria and we assume that uh, the population growth only depends on the initial number. So depending on how many bacteria you have, they will grow in a certain way. And that, that gives you an equation. And this is, we call an auxiliary uh, assumption, something that they know is wrong. And then when they see the difference, they see that they grow instead in a different way. They use this difference between the assumption and reality to infer other factors. Okay, so that's an auxiliary assumption. That's not a philosophical bias. So uh, and scientists know that they use this all the time. So we don't say that, you know, scientists are naive about having assumptions, but uh, there are uh, many times biases that we make all the time without being aware of that. And this is what we call philosophical bias, which is also an acronym for basic implicit assumptions in science. Um, and that is, for instance, when we think that uh, uh, the best way to look at causation is with the control studies. Uh, this is something that, I mean, it is so inside us that we don't even, uh, it's hard even to, um, to discuss that. But why is it? Because we, we assume that causation is something that makes a difference to the effect. And it is so implicit in our in everything also in our uh, everyday experience and in the way that we we learned when we went to medicine school or or whatever uh, education we have it doesn't even need to be uh, health sciences and so that we we don't discuss it we say of course causation is something that makes a difference so the best way to see it is with control study where i can compare two groups and i can see the difference Okay, this we call a philosophical bias because it is um, it is rooted in a certain idea of what causation is. It's a theory, it's an ontological theory of causation. And it's something we don't discuss, we don't think about. So when we discuss whether RCTs are the best way and we, uh, we, we make methodological maybe criticism and we say, well, uh, there's there's been a lot of this criticism uh, lately. For instance, scientists saying that uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, there are a lot of um, observational studies, for instance, that can tell you things that RCTs don't tell you. Uh, but what we think is that these methodological uh, discussions uh, often are actually discussions about these uh, intuitions we have. So scientists who are opposing that, they are actually opposing that intuition that causation always makes a difference, might. I mean, it's not always. We don't say it's absolutely always, but often. And often this is not, uh, uh, this is not discussed. It remains implicit. So we call it bias uh, because it is an acronym, but also because these biases, like other, like the systematic errors, they change, they influence everything, all the process. They influence the way we uh, look for something, they actually influence our research question, first of all, what is important to ask, what is the way to look for it, and how do we interpret the results? Uh, but there is a big difference between uh, philosophical bias and normal bias, which is that this philosophical bias are something that we need. We need to start from something if you want to uh, make a scientific inquiry. If you want to look at the world, we need to suffer some ideas we have about the world. So unlike the other bias I talk about, there is no way that we can um, reduce it or take it away. We need, we need to start from a certain theory, certain idea. All we can do is to be critical and uh, be sure that, you know, I chose my philosophy, I um, um, looked at my philosophical bias and make a critical decision of, what I really think I need to adopt here. And uh, if I think it's not perfect, I have a justification for it. And I'm, uh, I'm able to uh, defend it. Okay, so uh, I make it explicit. My argument is, is explicit and then I'm, I'm able to defend my choice also from this fundamental point of view. Yeah, that's, that's actually really, really, really interesting in the sense that I think the the one thing is is that we we have to choose we we can't 
we can't get rid of this bias because we always have to assume how the world works to make those decisions. What you've said just there is that it's about making it explicit. It's about understanding the choice that we've made, why we've made it. And I think I go back to that example about when you're talking about bacterial population growth, you're almost using it as an advantage that you can go, well, if we're assuming that, um, you know, determinism, the idea that the initial um, factors or the initial sort of starting point of what's happening determines the outcome, um, then when things don't follow that, that route, you can say something has gone wrong. And I think I'm thinking about research sort of in, in my field, and I'm looking at something like uh, plantar heel pain is, is a good one. Uh, because what I see all the time is that I see studies with really, really broad uh, inclusion criteria. So a big spread of ages, a big, big spread of activities, or it's not even discussing activities. It's not discussing all these factors that could influence whether someone gets pain in their heel. And I guess the, the assumption there is, and this is sort of about uh, I'm not sure what philosophy this fit in, but I've sort of seen it as there is only one cause of if you've got um, pain in the heel, there seems to be only one one cause for it. Everyone has the same thing. And therefore, when we do this RCT, we include everyone and they then when, when people don't respond um, as we expect, so maybe the treatment that we trial is only 50% effective, how do we make sense of that? And often that's made sense of by, well, the treatment wasn't perfect or it's, it's only 50% effective. Therefore there must be something else. We've missed something else, I guess, rather than thinking about the population growth, if we're thinking about, okay, we've taken on this explicit philosophy of maybe it is one condition, but some people got heaps better and other people didn't get better at all. You know, could we, is, is this, I guess the first question would be, is that sort of what we're talking about with philosophical bias? And I guess, if we were to make it explicit in that case and say, well, we've made this assumption that this is how the human body works and we're seeing results that potentially challenge that is, you know, is that a good use of, of philosophical bias as well? Yes. So the best use of philosophical bias would be uh, when you explain your experimental design, you would explain we chose this design because we want to look for, for instance, a, a causal uh, a relationship. And we assume that here a causal relationship is, uh, um, in your case, like we assume the causal relationships, causal, um, causes are addictive, addictive. So you can add them. So you can look at one cause at the time, because that would be the, the thing. You know that uh, in, in this experiment, we are looking at this endpoint, this effect. And you're looking for this cause and this effect. I don't think that it, that necessarily means that who designs the experiment thinks that there is only one cause, but it does mean that they think that you can look at causes in separation. So you can look at one causal factor or maybe two. Uh, sometimes in uh, in, your, in our cities you can look at more than one, but but not many. So experimental designs like our cities, they're not they're not designed for a broad. As far as I know, there's none of that. So you look at one uh, or two causal factors. So there the assumptions would be that we can look at fine causal factors in isolation and then we can combine them, which is which is an uh, assumptions, definitely. And if I may uh, finish uh, about the philosophical biases, something I, I would like to add to complete um, the fact that we find three types of philosophical bias. Uh, in science. So one is the uh, philosophical bias about what there is, which would be what Rani called philosophical bias about ontology, so how the world is. So what, what do we mean when we talk about co uh, a cause? What is a cause? What do we mean when we say about something is complex? What is complexity? Or what is probability? Another is a bias about how do we see things, like epistemology. So for instance, do we, do we see causation better when we are in the context, or do we see it better in, in uh, causal isolation? And the third is the bias is what is right to do. So what is the right thing to do? For instance, is the right thing to do something that uh, brings the, the most advantage for the most people? Uh, this would be uh, more about values. Uh, this is the part that until now we have, uh, we're, we're starting developing from now on, I would say. 
um, but that's not because we think it doesn't it doesn't uh, enter. Of course, it's it's very important. All these three are three types of bias that are, um, you know, they're never isolated. One is together with the other. So what what we're sort of saying there is that there's even that sort of uh, a bias in sort of how we how we think about uh, the process. So you know, thinking about like the population based study, for example, you know, we can understand we're sort of looking at it and going, well, this is the result that works best for most people. Therefore, we're gonna that's the treatment that everyone should get because it's more likely to get the result, which is again we've discussed the problems with with that compared to someone who's who's focusing more on the individual and we can say well that actually doesn't yeah that doesn't help us for the individual person what are we doing for the individual sorry i'm just downloading an image rani has sent me elena it was the yama the yama uh, uh journal that defines uh, causation as RCTs, and they even say for more about our, um, to read more about use of causal language, see the AMA manual style, manual of style. I mean, it's in their style guide, <laughs> how to think about causation. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to say something in uh, that is uh, so, uh, Rani, you just sent this uh, this paper where they have their own language about how to talk about causation. And I think it's really interesting that uh, in depending from different scientific disciplines, you also have different, uh, um, you can say, rules about uh, how you talk about causation and what it is. Uh, in a way, I think it's an advantage that they make it so explicit uh, because then we, they say, you know, here, when we talk about position, we're talking about this and that. Uh, and But what we would like more, like a step more is to say, why do we, why do we uh, talk about position this way? Because we make this assumption, that would be the perfect thing. Still, I think it's better to make it explicit than not to say, because in other disciplines, you say the same thing, you say cause, and then you, you, uh, you mean different uh, things, for instance, in drug safety, uh, causal assessment in single cases is very important and you have methods to assess causation in the single case. And when you say causal relationship, you don't necessarily mean uh, that you found a difference in the population level. Uh, sometimes you get a hypothesis of uh, you know, a risk of drug from uh, three very well, even one, but usually it's minimum one is considered like minimum three very well described cases where you can understand uh, the context and you can understand uh, that the drug uh, made a difference. It's a difference making uh, uh, idea, but this time it's in the single. It's more qualitative. So the point is that what a, a big advantage is to have to recognize that there are dis disciplinary differences in uh, philosophical understanding of concepts. And uh, define like in this in in this area in this uh, for this work or for our um, discipline, we assume causation this and that. And also, uh, for instance, we assume that we assume uh, um, a public health view by which we want to find a factor that impacts the most people. You know, like because we take this, we're interested in public health view, and then someone else could say, well. I, I'm interested in the single, uh, I'm, I have more a clinical view, I'm interested in the single patient. This, this I think are biases more of the third type, bias about what we think is, what do, do we value more? So mm -hmm. you see there are three levels. What I think things are, how do I see them best, which are very related, and then what do I value more? That's, that's really interesting because then that sort of talks more about the the norms and how um we can have uh the society that we're in can have an impact on us because i guess if we're looking again at that that um process of um uh, using rcts as the major form of, of causation in in when i think about what we talked about a lot at university and how we sort of went through studies so much of it was is if the rct says it works it works 
um, if a case study says it works, well, you know, watch out. So there was that already built into that was a value that real science is repeatability. It's being able to prove it over and over again. But, the, you know, there are, that's what we valued. And that's kind of what was passed, passed on to us. Um, and, and that's what influenced us and ultimately the way that we view it. But as we've discussed in the previous interviews, it's not always the best way of proving exactly what's happening, understanding the mechanisms, understanding what's happening for the application to our individual patient in front of us. So from a researcher's perspective, that can be in a public health perspective, that's incredibly helpful. But from our individual perspective, that's where we clash. And that's where potentially the conclusions of certain studies or conclusions of, of, um, of the research it can clash with with our experience. Ronnie, do you have something? Can you can you add to this? Well, I wanted to bring in the concept of complexity here because uh, today in healthcare we have a lot of specialists, and everyone's taking care of their part of the body. And I guess um, your field is uh, is one of these. And you could say that well, um, as a norm, it's good that you get the specialist. Uh, so that uh, they really know what they're doing. So if you have surgery in your hand, you want someone who has done lots and lots of surgery in the hand, for instance. But um, it's also a question about whether um, the whole person can be treated as a sum of all their parts. So that if you have chronic illness or complex conditions, um, is the best way to treat that person to divide this into the separate parts, treat them individually, and then hope that the whole person is going to be well. So that would be a philosophical bias um, where complexity means composition of parts that add up. And then it means also that the best scientific methodology when you want to look at a complex problem is to divide it up into these separate parts, treat them individually and put them back together. But if you, for instance, think that this is not the way to do it, you have to treat the whole person and first look at the complex problem on the highest level, namely of that person in their situation, in their context, then you would think that that itself would influence uh, and inform how you should best treat that person. So it might be that they come in with the pain in a certain part of their body, but maybe that pain is linked to something uh, that wasn't specific for that body part. And if you then send that person to a specialist to operate on or treat that part separately from a holist perspective that would be a bad thing to do um so so the same thing is when we divide the whole healthcare system into the mental and the physical and so <laughs> if there's nothing wrong with you physically it must be something mentally so that really shows that the whole society and the whole system of medicine has a philosophical bias of dualism mind-body dualism so if you want to challenge that, it's not just enough to say, oh, I think a person is a whole person. I don't think there is this very clear gap between the mind and the body. But then you need to follow up with the whole system and the way that we uh, study the mind and the body and the whole person. So you cannot just say, I changed my philosophical bias to holism. You have to follow up with everything, including methodology. And then the isolation and separation methodology is going to be problematic. It's it's a interesting point because I, I am I am aware of of you know lots of lots of cases where yeah you know you get sent to a, a specialist with something and or and they just look at what their specialty is um, a classic case was big calls and I guess I don't want to demonize um, any sort of specific specialty because we do it as well we come in and we look at someone's foot and we kind of go. No, nah, that's what we've looked at. See you later. Um, but there was a the big issue. Uh, there was a big issue made out about it with, um, and there was a couple of there was a research paper and said you know it's now almost negligence to to say that you know to not look at psychosocial factors when someone presents to you. And the example that they used was um, a GP sending a uh, young patient to a cardiologist to um, essentially look into what's going on with their heart because they're having, you know, extremely high heart rate, um, sweats, all of these sort of symptoms. They said, let's go check their heart. And the cardiologist says, everything's fine. But what they actually found was there was panic attacks and anxiety. 
And so essentially you've got this person that's gone to, uh, you know, a specialist to look at just, you know, to, to understand um, whether there's something wrong or not. And they've just said nothing's wrong when in reality, there wasn't something structurally wrong with their heart, but there was other influences that could affect it. But having that very narrow defined view of, you know, where we're looking at just the physical properties of the body and what we can observe, we missed the, the broader scope. When do the symptoms come on? How often do they come on? How do they, you know, what are the sensations and things that they feel? Could there actually be something interacting with the heart? Because ultimately in that point in time, the heart was pumping. It was just the reason for it wasn't there. And as a healthcare system, you know, we should probably be aware of that. If, if someone rolls up with their foot and it has uh, an ulcer on it, I don't look at it as just an ulcer on their foot. I look at it as, you know, well, what's happening with them as a whole person, you know, are they diabetic? What's their blood flow? What's their sensation? Like we do look outside of, of the limb um, and, you know, we potentially need to do that with more factors. So not looking at them as just physical factors, again, blood flow, but it can also be the psychosocial factors, what's happening with that person overall um, that's making them potentially not want to take care of their their foot so reading some of the work on on um, philosophical bias and this sort of different in the way difference in the way that we approach things I've I've also noticed you've talked about how it is also impact how we interpret results that uh, two people can look at the same results and have completely different uh, conclusions based upon how they approach the world. And I think this would be a sort of a good uh, point to discuss because I guess that's something that I see a lot in discussions online or discussions at conferences and things is that, you know, we present these results and we say, well, here's, here's the, here's the study where they did, here's the methodology and here's the result. And when we see people butt heads, it's not often about exactly what was done. It, it's, and the results, it's more about what the results mean can, can we talk about that a little bit as well so uh, you see the problem you have when uh, especially in science like health sciences is that uh, you more often often than not you need to uh, evaluate complex evidence so we wouldn't be talking about this we wouldn't be having this class if in the cases where you know you have different types of evidence and they all point to the same uh, results, that that's not really big. But that's not when we need to even talk about this uh, interpretation, philosophical bias, etc. But um, it's very often in the health sciences that you have uh, uh, different uh, experiments uh, with sophisticated, uh, often uh, design or like you have uh, cases, uh, single cases, and you have uh, preclinical uh, research, and you have this body of uh, evidence that uh, points to, to different results. So you have, for instance, some cases uh, where, uh, now I take example, for instance, from, uh, from um, drug safety, which is my main field, so you have, some cases where uh, it seems that the patient was uh, hurt by a certain drug, but that you don't see it, you, you're not able to see it as a, um, in RCTs, for instance, it didn't uh, uh, show up, or, uh, or for instance, you have some, uh, um, some observations, for instance, some core studies that show you, for instance, that some drugs are... Uh, um, helping, protecting for heart disease, like in the case of hormones in the 90s, you had this hormonal therapy used in uh, women for, uh, I think, more than a decade with the purpose of protecting against the heart, heart disease because it was uh, seen at the um, population level from observational study that this could help. Then you have uh, RCTs coming along and showing, you know, actually, this is not protecting, quite the contrary, this is uh, provoking uh, heart attacks. So in that cases, you need to say that you trust some type of evidence better than other. And uh, what are you going to trust? That's the problem. Uh, and that's where you need to say that you have some kind of hierarchy. Uh, if not, if you don't accept to say that you have, you know, a hierarchy that uh, is valid all the time, at least in that case, 
you need to, to make an argument for why you value one type of evidence more than uh, the other. And this is uh, often a methodological, uh, I would say always, you see methodological arguments, for instance, this, this study, I trust the best this study because it is it has a bigger um, population, it has a, a bigger sample, or because it has a better uh, um, better design, it controls for more uh, confounding factors. Uh, or someone say, no, I trust more the case studies because this case is closer to the type of patients I have. So I don't care that I don't care that at the population level I see this difference when this population doesn't represent my patients. So I want to see something that represents my patient. And the other would say, yeah, but I mean, what do you see from here? You have so, so many confounding factors. So you, you don't really rely. You cannot rely that you found the, the difference maker. And then that the other people will say, well, I mean, I don't care if it's not that reliable that I find one difference maker. I, I care that, you know, I have something that is relevant for my patients. So I can see a context and I can see a pattern and I can uh, make some predictions for my patient. So for instance, uh, so these are the types of, um, of discussions you can read a lot. I mean, we can read this about uh, almost everything. And now we had you know, COVID-19 and you've seen scientists discussing, should we put the mask, should we not put the mask? Should we have social distancing? Should we not? In the beginning, at least. Then about all this, then we now we have a policy for almost everything. Then uh, not to talk about the vaccine and uh, do we not do we do we not have these side effects? What do we do when we see them, etc. So one point to make is that uh, I think it's very uh, and in those I mean we think it's very harmful for science and society to come out with this idea that there is one uh, answer that uh, science gives you. So once you have the perfect data set, uh, then all scientists will agree and will be able to give you the answer. This is um, a bias, a philosophical bias that comes, if uh, Rani, correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes from uh, empiricism. And it says like, uh, once you have all the data, you will, the data will tell you the answer. And there is one answer. This is the ideal of science. Uh, which is an ideal we've been having for a long time, and now it's being uh, uh, discussed a lot, uh, especially from movements. Um, I think it we can say it started with the feminist epistemologists saying, "Well, there is not nothing like that, nothing, nothing like the answer to the science." So you have different uh, evidence that you have different interpretations. Why do you have these different interpretations? Because you start from different points, different background, that, which we call philosophical bias. Um, so what can you do then when you have these different philosophical bias? So you can at least uh, try to explicate them. And, uh, you know, like, so feminist epistemologists say that there is no such thing as objectivity. Uh, like objectivity doesn't mean one answer, but it means that you have many answers supported by many uh, different uh, basic assumptions. So that's the same thing we say, like you don't come with only one um, right, correct um, interpretation of results. You, come with, you can come with different, but you can uh, uh, motivate very well your interpretation so that you know, you can defend it and someone else can uh, can argue uh, very clearly why why they're uh, they're having a different interpretation. I guess what what I'm what I'm sort of hearing in there as well is that a lot of this comes down to whether you know you think that science has all the answers or science doesn't have the answers and we're very much trying to figure it out what i'm hearing is there that you know because if someone comes in and says you know science has all the answers this is this one way that we're going to study it all and that's going to tell us exactly what we do and we're just going to follow that where really to really what, what we're sort of getting at is that you need to have some sort of um flexibility um some understanding that if we don't have all the answers there's different assumptions that we bring uh, although we have to take into any sort of discussion and, and really that we should be as 
um, even clinicians being aware of what those assumptions are in our own thinking, being aware of what the assumptions are that that research is is taking uh, into into account when we when we look at the results, um, or when they when they uh, produce the methodology, the assumptions that we make when we look at the results. So, you know, I'm, I'm again thinking about you know the the heel pain sort of stuff, and when we're talking about you know I've I've did a presentation at the start of this on the traditional model of health and. Um, the way we look at it, very simple cause and effect compared to this more complex understanding. And we can look at results like one person can look at it and say a very frequentist approach, you know, orthotics seem to work in 50% of the cases of heel pain, therefore 50% of the time it, it's going to work for every patient when we could look at it and say, well, actually 50% of the time, it, it works in 50% of the people. We can look at that is who is that 50% that it got better with? How can we determine that? Um, compared to just the old oh, 50% coin flip, just give it to everyone, 50% will get better and then we'll, fi we'll figure it out. I guess that's that's where I'm seeing it. It can, this, this sort of concept can be incredibly helpful. We can have better, more nuanced discussions. You're assuming, you know, we can say to people, I think you're assuming this, or we can say, I'm assuming this, or I'm approaching it from this perspective. And someone goes, well, we can argue then more about the perspective and the philosophy of it, why we're making those decisions rather than what I do see is, is two people sort of locking horns and saying, my results are better than your results, which is goes to that example that you were sort of talking about, about, you know, hormone replacement therapy in the nineties, where someone was saying it does good. And some other one's saying it does not as good. And then we just lock horns and people stay in their camps. I, I can add to that example. Maybe I can uh, talk a little bit more about that to make mm. uh, yet another point. Because that uh, very example of the hormonal therapy in the 90s is um, one of the uh, corners, uh, the basic examples that are made to show the predominance of RCPs. Because that's what, what has happened there is that uh, a big RCP came along after about uh, more than a decade showing that uh, uh, actually the therapy was hurting, uh, was provoking heart attack. And, uh, and that's uh, what uh, EBM defenders use often to say, you see like once you have a good, you need a good experimental design to show you difference making without, uh, where you uh, are sure that the two groups are equivalent. If you don't have that, uh, observation will not show you anything. Uh, and then they um, they also use this to say like what counts is what you see and uh, not uh, what you your previous beliefs etc. And what is the uh, um, I think a bit interesting to bring up here is that we actually use this example in Cosel to show that uh, to show a bit uh, quite the contrary. So we say that uh, even when you only look at uh, uh, statistical studies. So when you don't want to bring in any theory, you don't want to uh, bring in like previous knowledge, you're just judging whether technically your experimental statistical design is less biased. So do I trust this as less biased? So even in that case, you would not be able to do it without any uh, previous knowledge, without any theory. Uh, which is something we uh, advocate for in COSAT because we say that uh, actually you, you do need theory and previous knowledge for more or less everything and you don't have, uh, we don't believe in this idea that data tells you the truth, pure data tells you anything. So here's why we think about that. So what you had at that time, you had a series of uh, observations telling you that uh, uh, the, the hormones protected, were protective. And then came this uh, RCT came along and told you, no, 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 hormones are dangerous. So why did they trust the RCT? They trusted the RCT because they said the RCT is better at uh, giving you the difference making. So the RCT is better at, at telling you that uh, this group and this group were uh, equal and equivalent. And then uh, when you have the hormones, you see uh, a difference, you see an effect in one of the groups and not in the others. So that's actually uh, the causal relationship. It shows you the causal relationship. But why did they trust that these two groups were uh, uh, equivalent? I mean, what, what is it? So it's the design of the RCT. So 
the low big numbers, so uh, the fact that they were randomized. So the, the uh, participants were randomly assigned to either the two groups, so, and there were many. So this tells you that uh, in principle, uh, the two groups should be uh, equal, but a good RCT, a good RCT doesn't stop here. So for a good RCT, you need to, to check that the two groups are equivalent. Now, how do you do that? What do you check? You need to check some parameters that are um, relevant. So what did they check in this case? Well, they checked, um, well, as usual, sex and race, that's always. You always check for sex and race for some uh, reason. Then they checked uh, amount that there were equal amount of smokers, equal amount uh, of similar distribution of uh, body mass index. They checked that there was similar history of uh, you know heart disease. Uh, there were similar amount of people with diabetes, etc. So, what I want to say is that. Even if you just believe in the statistical uh, design in the population, in order to trust the statistical design, you need to have some previous knowledge. Otherwise, why would you look for these uh, for these uh, parameters? I mean, why didn't they look at the um, amount, you know, of uh, scientific publications, or you know, like. Uh, uh number of uh, size of the food i mean this is it seems uh it seems trivial but it's not uh it really shows that uh, and uh, and that was uh something that we published actually this this really shows that uh even uh you know this approach of only looking at the statistical design is made because we don't want to trust uh, you know, previous theory, things that we don't see. But actually, in order to, to decide which design I prefer, you need to rely on your, on your previous knowledge and your theory. So it actually doesn't work to try to, uh, to dismiss it. Actually, it is dangerous to try to dismiss theoretical knowledge, physiopathological knowledge. What, what, what could we do? What we should do is try to become better at that for what is possible. Mm. I like I like that example a lot when you're sort of talking about the RCTs and especially what you said before about RCTs being you can only study so many things. They talk about primary and secondary outcomes because they can say, well, this is the outcome that you know we can we can be more statistically um, or we can say is going to to reach a point where there's there's less bias in it because of the way we've measured it. Here's a bunch of secondary outcomes, but at the end of the day, you had to choose why you you know those sort of things and yeah we don't have a discussion as much about those sort of the, those issues that, that that come in and that so when we're looking at an rct while it is better at a lot of things it's also very narrow so we're missing out on factors and like you're sort of saying you know that when you do two different rcts and you found two different results it often comes from potentially what you're looking at uh, whether the groups truly randomized all those you know methodological errors because yeah if you're not picking something that you think is relevant which is based on the theory which is based on how you think the world works you you, you just wouldn't study it you'd miss it you know so you know you you don't study like you said foot size in a um or you don't you know check the groups for foot size in a hormone replacement therapy study but you you may do that in a study in my field and that might be much more relevant or it might be could be completely irrelevant and a red herring and you you do and there's no theoretical basis behind it so that's that's incredibly interesting and i think that that's sort of where our discussions potentially should go because I, I know we don't discuss assumptions we don't discuss things I think people are very sort of cagey about being open about why they made certain decisions because it almost it, it can feel sort of that you're saying that it, things don't matter when it's really just about saying Know, we need to understand why you made these decisions. We need to understand the impact of these decisions. And we understanding that we can actually get more from your information um, by, you know, again, that sort of biological population growth sort of uh, um, example you gave before, rather than looking at it as, I think, an attack, which I think is where a lot of us, um, when we talk about research and we discuss research with people, it, it almost feels like an attack. Yeah, I wanted to just say uh, in the end that, uh, you know, when you 
when you publish a paper, you are, have to be transparent about your uh, study design. So if you have a finding saying that this worked for 50%, it, it really makes a difference whether it was two people you studied or, uh, or 20,000 or 200,000. Uh, and what we are saying is that um, it should be equally important to make your philosophical biases transparent. So of course, if it's a bias, you're not aware of it, but it is the responsibility of the scientists instead of just publishing results that contradict each other, you know, between <laughs> research groups to also say which kinds of assumptions they were uh, based on. So for instance, if you use deterministic models in your calculations, it would be a good idea to say, we use the deterministic model uh, or we are assuming here when we say risk, what we're talking about is population level risks. And we have looked at things like postcode. <laughs> While well, you know, for instance, that your risk is not increasing just because you move across the street. So it makes it more uh, possible for people to interpret those results because as Elena talked about earlier, when um, the community or clinicians or anyone is reading about um, the results, we just see that scientists disagree. And then it comes down to who do we trust? Which results do we trust? But if people can be explicit about why they arrive at different results, for instance, they studied very different populations or they used very different theories uh, in their studies, then we could actually start discussing those things. So if, uh, if people have a reductionist model, for instance, then we can discuss that. If you have a, um, uh, an idea of complexity as something fragmented and you want to separate and isolate and other models say that, no, we need to study the complex whole in their natural settings, then that should be discussions that we should have in just, instead of just discussing the results. Yeah, that's, that's an in incredibly incredibly good point because i think it's it's sort of it's what we're not doing we're, we're seeing the methodology and we're just looking at methodology as okay that's the experiment they did not why did they choose that why are they measuring this what does this mean for for the models and i guess that's sort of what i look at when i look at you know we, we see definitely competing research groups you know with this research group might be more of a barefoot and this research group might be this and it's not sort of invalidating their results it's sort of saying that if we understand the assumptions that they've made to get these results we can understand how this group over there can say one thing this group over there can say another thing and how they fit in when we understand and we go back to that sort of discussion we talked about mechanisms if we can understand our assumptions we understand why we got the results we can then understand mechanisms we can understand mechanisms we can understand more about the body than it is just about yeah picking your group i believe the barefoot group or i believe the maximalist you know springy sort of shoe group uh, over here that that's that's going to be the the way to go Maybe I can add that there is um, there's been uh, an opposition to our uh, a, a recent publication who says by other uh, philosophers who say that uh, actually by bringing out the philosophical uh, um, um, basic assumptions about uh, scientists' point of view, you could uh, uh, actually do harm you could uh, polarize more the discussion and give scientists philosophical um, a reason to disagree. One more reason to disagree, like a philosophical uh, uh, you know, reason to by just disagree and stay on their position. So I think in this case, you would look at philosophical basic assumptions as uh, a consequence and not as a source of the disagreement. So that's a, a basic difference. So we look at this as source of disagreement, not as a consequence. So these uh, people who argue like that, they think that uh, scientists would disagree anyway, and you give them one more argument to uh, for the disagreement. We think that they disagree because of that, but also we think that once uh, you that there is a point that. Uh, which is that uh, once uh, we acknowledge that this, uh, it's important to be transparent, you, can, you must also find ways. So why would you then, when you have to make, for instance, the decision uh, as a clinician, uh, so you have make an evidence-based decision and you have to look at all these different arguments, 
why would you prefer one argument over the other? So why would you go for a holistic view and not the other view? So, um, and it can be because you agree more as a clinician. Uh, it can be because you with your patient uh, agree, uh, etc. Um, it is a bit more problematic when it is a public health decision where, uh, for instance, a policy, a, a health policy needs to decide and, uh, okay, we go more for this assumption and not for there, then like, what is the reasoning for that? So what we need are um, uh, ways and methods that are a little bit more uh, structured, uh, also to choose you know, basic assumptions one over the other. How are we going to do that? And this is a challenge, it's not easy. And this one direction we are taking in our research. So we're trying to look at now part of our research, like how do you, now that we said that it's so important to be transparent, how are we going to find methods uh, for uh, with which we can argue for one, uh, how do we choose one uh, uh, basic assumption over the other? So this is the future direction. Yeah, really sort of figuring out the way forward and rather than sort of keeping the status quo of people arguing, it's sort of saying that if we understand, you know, philosophical bias as, as the source of people's disagreement, which is exactly, you know, I think that's that's summarized my, my previous point where I see discussions and, and it's that that difference that the, the, the source of, is the source of the dis disagreement rather than, you know, if we understood where each other comes from, we can come together, that sort of where we ultimately want to get to but the, the tricky thing is is exactly how we get there well i think that's a uh, really good point to to end on i think we've we've covered a lot and i think we've we've really explained a lot more around where we cause health as well and not just saying you know we've got this new way of looking at things and we're right, we're, we're wrong. It's sort of exploring, well, in this view and in this sort of way, we can start to just have better discussions. We can start to expand um, our understanding of evidence, expand our understanding of research and sort of work collaboratively um, and working on this, on this, uh, improving the status quo. So thank you very much for, for joining, for joining me, Eleanor and Rani. Thank you thank for you. having us. And, um, yeah, thank you everyone for for watching and, and joining us. Uh, hopefully, you've uh, gotten a lot out of out of this discussion. Um, I will be putting again, as usual, uh, a little sort of uh, summary that um, people can watch afterwards. Sort of taking out sort of the key points and exactly how I think they can change uh, our clinical practice. And obviously, if you have any questions, um, please feel free to put them uh, to comment on, on below and um, ask us. Um, I'm always uh, happy to get in contact with Rani and Eleanor, bring them back on to, to, to answer.